For Pete's sake. I'm Kat. And I'm Liz, and we're Chatting Catholic. We're self-study theologians of the domestic church. And we love reading what the Bishop of Rome has to say for himself. Welcome back to For Pete's Sake. Hello. How are my papists? They're doing great because they're out of the desert. Oh, yes. It is Easter. It is happy Easter season. Oh, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. What are we supposed to say? Uh, Christos Voskres. I don't know the um, response to that one. Oh, then you start. Oh, Christos Anesti. No, it's... uh, I don't know your response either. <laughs> here, you do, here you do your whole one and I'll do my whole one. That way they can hear the Paschal greeting in two different languages. All right. Uh, Christos Voskres. And then you respond. Vosatino Voskres. Vosatino Voskres. What is it? <laughs> Vosatino Voskres. Vosatino Voskres. <laughs> Vosatino. No, it's... it's, it's it, Vostino. I meant you Susu. do your whole greeting and response, yes. and I'll do my whole greeting yes. and response. Yeah, no, no, that's... Uh, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Now you do yours. Christos Anesti, and then the person would greet you back as Alithos Anesti. Alithos Anesti. Mm-hmm. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so fun. Um, and then in English, uh, Christ is risen. He is truly risen indeed. Yes! Yes, he is. Oh, What's your man, favorite, I... like, Easter? What do you guys do for Easter? Uh, well, actually, we do, um, up on one of the windows, we write Christos Voskres, um, and then a giant empty cross that's got, like, yellow lines shining out of it to show that it's empty. Oh, I love it. And then, well, it's not Easter, but all Lent long, we do the beans, which means oh, every night yes. we sit down and do an examination of conscience. And everybody gets a little pile of beans, and you can hide your pile of beans. And then, as uh, as I'll I'll read through, and I just got one from the John Paul II Center. As as I say things, and you're like, oh yeah, I did that today. You take a bean and you put it over on the other side, and then when you're all done, you privately get to put your there's still beans back in the bean bucket, and you get to take your little sins and put them in the sin bucket. And then on Good Friday, I wrap up the sin bucket in a purple uh, purple cloth, and I put a crucifix over it. And at some point before Easter Sunday, uh, the beans disappear, and the cloth disappears, and the crucifix is gone, and the, uh, the, the cave is empty, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So do you bring them back as jelly beans? I do not, though that is clever. <laughs> I've seen like a lot. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people do that. They'll do their their sins like with the beans all lent long, and then they turn into like sweet, colorful, bright jelly beans. Like he's taken them and he's transformed them. <laughs> I love this. No, they. Just, I just have them disappear. Um, and then there's the the line. Um, Oh, shoot. I can't even remember the Easter story, right? Like, I remember the story, but not the words, um, the verse I'm thinking of. But it's something like, he is not here. Oh, yeah. We do that, too. Um, I got to think of the verse. Yeah, in Matthew. But we have a we have yep. a cross that well, we put up, and it says, um, he is not here on it. Yes. So we do that yep. as well. Yeah, I love um, one of my favorite Paschal Trindium um, things that we do is we do a coin scavenger hunt on Spy Wednesday. That's really fun oh, and my kids fun. love that. We put coins around. It's almost like instead of an egg hunt, they do like a we hide like the 30 coins and Oh goodness. They have a fun time. All right, let's get but, back to business. 
Yes. All right, Liz. Uh, Liz is going to take us through the end of chapter six. So that's going to be paragraphs 215 to 224. Take it away, Liz. A new culture. Life, for all its confrontations, is the art of encounter. I have frequently called for the growth of a culture of encounter capable of transcending our differences and divisions. This means working to create a many-faceted polyhedron whose different sides form a variegated unity in which the whole is greater than the part. The image of a polyhedron can represent a society where differences coexist, complementing, enriching, and reciprocally illuminating one another, even amid disagreements and reservations. Each of us can learn something from others. No one is useless and no one is expendable. This also means finding ways to include those on the peripheries of life, for they have another way of looking at things. They see aspects of reality that are invisible to the centers of power where weighty decisions are made. Encounter that becomes culture. The word culture points to something deeply embedded within a people, its most cherished convictions, and its way of life. A people's culture is more than an abstract idea. It has to do with their desires, their interests, and ultimately the way they live their lives. To speak of a culture of encounter means that we as a people should be passionate about meeting others, seeking points of contact, building bridges, planning a project that includes everyone. This becomes an aspiration, a style of life. The subject of this culture is the people, not simply one part of society that would pacify the rest with the help of professional and media resources. Social peace demands hard work, craftsmanship. It would be easier to keep freedoms and differences in check with cleverness and a few resources. But such a peace would be superficial and fragile, not the fruit of a culture of encounter that brings enduring stability. Integrating differences is a much more difficult and slow process, yet it is the guarantee of a genuine and lasting peace. That peace is not achieved by recourse only to those who are pure and untainted, since even people who can be considered questionable on account of their errors have something to offer which must not be overlooked. Nor does it come from ignoring social demands or quelling disturbances, since it is not a consensus on paper or a transient peace for a contented minority. What is important is to create processes of encounter, processes that build a people that can accept differences. Let us arm our children with the weapons of dialogue. Let us teach them to fight the good fight of the culture of encounter. The joy of acknowledging others. All this calls for the ability to recognize other people's right to be themselves and to be different. This recognition, as it becomes a culture, makes possible the creation of a social covenant. Without it, subtle ways can be found to make others insignificant, irrelevant, of no value to society. While rejecting certain visible forms of violence, another, more insidious kind of violence can take root, the violence of those who despise people who are different, especially when their demands in any way compromise their own particular interests. 
when one part of society exploits all that the world has to offer. Acting as if the poor did not exist, there will eventually be consequences. Sooner or later, ignoring the existence and rights of others will erupt in some form of violence, often when least expected. Liberty, equality, and fraternity can remain lofty ideals unless they apply to everyone. Encounter cannot take place only between the holders of economic, political, or academic power. Genuine social encounter calls for a dialogue that engages the culture shared by the majority of the population. It often happens that good ideas are not accepted by the poorer sectors of society because they are presented in a cultural garb that is not their own and with which they cannot identify. A realistic and inclusive social covenant must also be a cultural covenant, one that respects and acknowledges different worldviews, cultures, and lifestyles that coexist in society. Indigenous peoples, for example, are not opposed to progress, yet theirs is a different notion of progress, often more humanistic than the modern culture of developed peoples. Theirs is not a culture meant to benefit the powerful, those driven to create for themselves a kind of earthly paradise. Intolerance and a lack of respect for indigenous popular cultures is a form of violence grounded in a cold and judgmental way of viewing them. No authentic, profound, and enduring change is possible unless it starts from the different cultures, particularly those of the poor. A cultural covenant eschews a monolithic understanding of the identity of a particular place. It entails respect for diversity by offering opportunities for advancement and social integration to all. Such a covenant also demands the realization that some things may have to be renounced for the common good. No one can possess the whole truth or satisfy his or her every desire, since that pretension would lead to nullifying others by denying their rights. A false notion of tolerance has to give way to a dialogic realism on the part of men and women who remain faithful to their own principles while recognizing that others also have the right to do likewise. This is the genuine acknowledgement of the other that is made possible by love alone. We have to stand in the place of others if we are to discover what is genuine, or at least understandable, in their motivations and concerns. Recovering Kindness Consumerist individualism has led to great injustice. Other persons come to be viewed simply as obstacles to our own serene existence. We end up treating them as annoyances, and we become increasingly aggressive. This is even more the case in times of crisis, catastrophe, and hardship, when we are tempted to think in terms of the old saying, every man for himself, yet even then we can choose to cultivate kindness. Those who do so become stars shining in the midst of darkness. St. Paul describes kindness as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He uses the Greek word krestotes, which describes an attitude that is gentle, pleasant, and supportive, not rude or coarse. Individuals who possess this quality help make other people's lives more bearable, especially by sharing the weight of their problems, needs, and fears. This way of treating others can take different forms. An act of kindness, a concern not to offend by word or deed, a readiness to alleviate their burdens. It involves speaking words of comfort, strength, consolation, and encouragement, and not words that demean, sadden, anger, or show scorn. 
Kindness frees us from the cruelty that at times infects human relationships, from the anxiety that prevents us from thinking of others, from the frantic flurry of activity that forgets that others also have a right to be happy. Often, nowadays, we find neither the time nor the energy to stop and be kind to others, to say, excuse me, pardon me, thank you. Yet every now and then, miraculously, a kind person appears and is willing to set everything else aside in order to show interest, to give the gift of a smile, to speak a word of encouragement, to listen amid general indifference. If we make a daily effort to do exactly this, we can create a healthy social atmosphere in which misunderstandings can be overcome and conflict forestalled. Kindness ought to be cultivated, it is no superficial bourgeoisie virtue. Precisely because it entails esteem and respect for others, once kindness becomes a culture within society, it transforms lifestyles, relationships, and the ways ideas dis are discussed and compared. Kindness facilitates the quest for consensus. It opens new pathways where hostility and conflict would burn all bridges. All right. So I hope you all enjoyed that. That is the end of chapter six, by the way. Only two more chapters left, but we're still going to discuss this one. So, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so we're talking a lot about what the first section was called. Um, a new culture. A new culture. So talking about encountering other cultures and this culture of encounter. Your thoughts, Kat? Yeah, I love this. And I usually take it to education because that's like, you know, our background. I always kind of like take it down that path. And so when I was reading it, I just started thinking about the studies that are out right now about multiculturalism in schools. And it's become a little bit of a controversy, or I guess, you know, it's always been a controversy within the school system and parents and things like that. But, but just the studies that that really a lot of people don't know about that are really, really interesting. And I remember um, I had a girl that lived across the hall from us in Chicago when we lived there. And she was in high school and her family was originally from Mexico. And I remember talking to her. And this was, of course, before I ever went back to school for education. But when I was talking to her, she had told me that she actually doesn't speak Spanish very well, and she she cannot really write very well in Spanish because when they moved here, the school system did the abrupt stop with Spanish, where everything is immersed in English for her to learn it. Yep. But she lost her first language and then, of course, did not become up to speed with English. So now she has two languages that she's not proficient in. Very good at. Right. Yeah. But the but all of the studies coming out are saying that like it actually is a greater service to dual to do like a dual language program with the kids in the school mm -hmm. to do first language maintenance to where cognitively if they are excelling in one language they can excel in both if they're introduced to it but the abrupt stop yes the abrupt stop of language damages the brain more than they ever thought possible. I mean, can you imagine learning math in a language you didn't understand? Right. The fact is, the language wouldn't matter to you. Like, it doesn't matter what word you use for the numbers. Once you understand math, you understand math. It's actually a pretty language-free system. Mm -hmm. But when you're learning it, 
Are you ever going to understand math very well if you're learning it in the wrong language, a language that you can barely communicate in? Yes. No. And it's, I know a lot of people are like, well, that's what my relatives did. But isn't it tragic that you can't speak German? Even a little bit? Right. Like, it's, it's not actually delightful. It's sad. Because being bilingual is actually really awesome. Well, and I think that's why my mom feared um, teaching us Tagalog when she moved here because that research wasn't out yet. It was you come to America, mm-hmm. you speak you speak English, and you do it automatically. Yeah. And everyone thought that that was just the way to do it is complete immersion in the language. But they're saying within the brain, you can do a dual language. Like, you can do that. Yes, and, and complete immersion is also just facts. Like, yes. you're here and you're going to school with a bunch of English-speaking children who have no idea right. about anything Tagalog. So that's that's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the classroom observations that I had to do are really fascinating because it was about the dual language programs to where you had... And the one that I, the one that I was um, viewing was they had a ton of students that spoke Japanese. So what they Mm -hmm. did was they were all in the same classroom as the English speakers, but they would Mm -hmm. do dual projects. So like they had to make a story and they had to build like the scene. They got to paint, they got to do everything they would have to do for this project. But then one girl would present it in Japanese and the other girl would present the same thing in English And so it was just really fascinating to see, and not even from a language perspective, but just the approach that they got to engage with someone from a different country with a different language, and they kind of, you know, worked on each other. But yet they were still in the same classroom. They were all still friends. They can still have unity. It's just, who cares? One person speaks one language. The other person speaks another language. They can still mm-hmm. coexist. And and Absolutely. language and food are like the two things that can really um, <laughs> joyfully connect people to other cultures. Yes. Because you can, it's not hard. It's, it's shockingly easy to look up how to say, hello, how are you? Mm-hmm. And make somebody's day. Yes. Like, kamustaka. <laughs> it's just, that's that easy. And... And even if you say it wrong, now they're laughing at you. But the thing about that is, especially if you're the English speaker in this conversation, Mm -hmm. you have relinquished some of your power by making a fool of yourself. And that's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. you've You've been like, I am willing to go out on a limb and sound like an idiot. And hopefully that will make you feel more comfortable around me when you are speaking in your second language. Know that I'm not gonna make fun of you for saying English wrong, I'm actually going to be impressed that you can say English at all because I don't think I could learn English if I didn't grow up knowing it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I have to, I think I've said this before, but like side story, like I have a uh, second grader, so he's fully immersed right now in phonics. And so he will do so good at learning a phonics rule and he will, he is ready to go. And then he reaches a word that has no, like that doesn't follow the rule at all. He's like, what is this? Yes. Yes, there is. So I learned Japanese in college. 
Oh my gosh, that's awesome! And my favorite thing about Japanese is that there aren't really phonics rules. There's just the alphabet. And if you know how to say the letter, you know how to say the letter. There's one or two letters that have any kind of conditional. And it's only when they're at the end of words. But both of them, if you accidentally said it one way, you're not going to say something you didn't mean. You're not going to sound stupid. There's really Mm -hmm. not phonics rules the way that where we have tear and tear and those things are spelled the same i'm sorry people who are learning this language right yes well kind of further on the same sort of topic that's uh, still in that new culture we've also got this i feel a further further controversy in the homeschooling and education world oh yes um but I see it, of course, as a homeschooler, but more, it, I'm sure it exists in, pu- not public schooling, but in private schooling as well, where you've got this, like, fight between teaching Western civilization and teaching some kind of multiculturalism. Right. And I mean, I will be the first to go out here on a limb, I guess, it, it's apparently a limb, and say you can't teach every culture. That's not reality. Right. Even to even pretend to try, you would do children a deep disservice to try. But, and this is a big but, that doesn't mean that Western civilization is always just the answer either. You can look at a given classroom and say, okay, mm-hmm. these are the cultures that are represented here. I, yes. as the teacher, can do a little bit of legwork. And even if go on teacherspayingteachers.com, I think it's called, um, yes. or whatever, and yeah, that's it. And get some book lists for the cultures I see represented here. First of all, sure, you should have Western civilization because it's what America was born of. But you also should have as a just a de facto before you even see what cultures are in your classroom, you need to have some form of black multicultural because that is also what this country was built on is the whole black experience. Um And then you need to have some form of authentic native, preferably to your state if possible, but otherwise at least discussing the Algonquin and Eastern Eastern Coast natives, Um, but preferably also your own state's Native American population, and you can look those things up easily. I'll have something in the show notes where you can do that. Yeah, I have a great book, and I'll put it in the show notes too, but it I think it's titled How Not to Teach Native American in Grade School. Yes. Because it, it they do they do take it too generalized mm-hmm. where it does it, it does a complete disservice that every single tribe was totally different. Yes. It was not a it was not a one size fits all. Here's what we teach you: wear the feathers in your hair and things like that. That has has nothing to do with the tribes. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's like pretending that you have Russian samovars walking across Ireland. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yes, exactly. Oh, and it's yeah. So that's a great book too. I'll I'll put that in there. But it was really an eye opening way to do it to teach my kids Native American cultures being respectful and teaching them what it's not like these generalized fun like banging on the drum like whatever they do in in grade schools it's just like no there's way more than that it's deeper than that and it's more complicated than that let's not generalize it yeah and if you can like obviously they're elementary schools kids you don't want to be talking like you you don't want to generalize the entire 
Native American First Nations experience down to the Trail of Tears because that's also a disservice. But uh, mm-hmm. so you want to be experiencing the fun stuff, but actually get into like right. again, what is your local tribe? What do they do, and what does it look like? And expose your kids to that because those are the Native Americans that they're going to encounter in their life. And then, yeah, be more. And I mean, there are places, especially when you're reading primary source pioneer documents, yes. where it's fine to say Indian because that's who they're referring to yeah yeah they're in that would be their viewpoint that's almost at that point that's saying more about the person who's writing this primary document like this person couldn't even be bothered to know where the person they're talking to is from isn't that just (laughs) lovely (laughs) (laughs) so first you should have those three things no matter what but then you can also look at like in my classroom oh look um, one of the schools here has a high Vietnamese population. Great. Let's, let's bring in some books right. there. Let's, you can do this without making a big deal about it either. You don't have to be like, oh, we're having a Vietnam unit. You can be like, hmm, on my shelf of free read books for any child to take. Absolutely. There's 15 picture books on Vietnamese children living normal lives. Great. Right. And that's what a lot of teachers are doing. They're doing it very authentically. It's not tokenism. It's not like, let's point out, you know, Tony Wynn over there. They can do it in a very authentic way where it's part of the curriculum. It's just part of it. Like, it doesn't have to be complicated. And like we said before, I don't... I don't deal with absolutes very well. (laughs) I'm not that kind of person. Uh, We are very balanced. We see all different sides of issues. I'm not going to tear down Western Civ. No. Because, yeah, because I I feel like multiculturalism needs to take a place. It can have a place within there. It is a culture. It can be on there. Yes. It's a very big culture. It's a very important culture, of course. And so... It's like it can be on that shelf with the rest of them and no one's saying that we're going to take it down. But there are people that, you know, who do protest against it. But our response cannot be to turn around and swing it the other way and be like, oh, I'm going to teach his Western stuff. No, I'm going to teach my children where they come from, which white lady, that's Western stuff. But I'm also going to teach them where all their friends are from. And that's going to be a lot of different places. And over the course of the 12 years that they're in education, I want to make it very clear to them that we're not discussing every single country and tribe and nation on earth because I want them to go deeper than, I want them to go deeper than feathers in their hair. I want them to understand. Absolutely. It's it's exactly what Pope Francis has said before that, you know, I'm going to say it again because I'm going to say it every episode is my goal to tie it in. Um, <laughs> you know where I'm going. <laughs> yes, I do. But- But being aware in the classroom of other cultures doesn't mean that you're respecting them enough to look deeper or to to say you have the same dignity as I do. Yes. So it it is it is yes, one is step one awareness. Yep. Step two actually Okay, but don't stop there. Right. Actually like don't stop there. Like go deeper with it. If you can tell me all about a culture, you but you've never had an encounter with a person of that culture, consider that a problem. What is American worldview versus not American worldview? We've talked about American culture before and how we do have 
a culture full of all kinds of things and not all of them are bad but we what is our worldview Hmm. it can be hard to pinpoint that because especially in america where we tend not to leave um we have a really big country and so you can't even say that like Obviously, New York's worldview is not the same as right. Ames, Iowa's worldview. It's just not. I think that's why I'm having a hard time, like, digesting that thought, too. Yeah. Yeah, we are so different. So it's more of a question, I think, for everyone. It's one of the questions that I, I've been chewing on this one for years now because people are always like, they need to assimilate. And I'm like, to what? Right. <laughs> if they assimilate New York, they're not going to fit in in Ames, Iowa. No. <laughs> That's for sure. (laughs) But I've met people who are just as American as me, and I'm like, what what kind of planet are you from? Are we from the same country, really? Right. You're right. What is there to assimilate to? (laughs) I love how one time I think we were talking about this, we brought up Portland. We're like, who can assimilate to Portland? No. And Seattle. That would be like a totally different thing. (laughs) Yes. But there is. The thing about it is people who move here from other countries even and move all over this country and go to both cities and rural say that there is something American. There is something American about America. And it's not all bad. There are a lot of people are trying to come here. And certainly there is something we sure do love freedom. We sure do. We love a lot of things to the point of recklessness. But what does it mean to be American We've asked this, I think, before, but I'm trying to, like, put myself in my mom's shoes because, of course, she grew up in the Philippines. So, like, how would she how would she interact with this with this question? And I think she would probably say freedom. I think she would probably say we do. I know we have our issues, but we do have a really good sense of kindness. Mm -hmm. Um, We're a very extroverted culture. So that tends to, people tend to perceive extroversion as kindness because we're like, hi, how are you? Yeah. Which, um, I mean, but then you have to, he also addresses that in here, like what is fake kindness or what is, you know, manners, but they're not necessarily genuine. Um, Absolutely. Like we're, we're known world over for just talking to the checker about whatever like the checker's gonna like the checker suddenly your therapist <laughs> um or your waitress a lot of people like yes talk to their waitress a lot like where are you from how's it going yep chit chat yes um we're very individualist like we we are who we're proud of being ourselves more than the community um, who I am matters more than if I fit in, if I make life easier for other people. I think, um, I was trying to think once again, in my mom's shoes, would she agree with that? And I think to a certain degree she would, because especially like in other countries, they're mm-hmm. very, you are with your family because you have to help us survive. Yes. So we're individualized in America in the fact that we can survive on levels yeah. individually. The nuclear family uh, yes. is a very, like, this idea that, and I, when I say nuclear, I mean we're even eliminating grandma and grandpa. It's mom, dad, kids, Aww. one house. Well, I mean, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the nuclear American family. And in other cultures, that's not a thing as much. And, and then so, like, at that point, Americans, we need to look at that viewpoint, be like, okay, where can we, how can we still have yes. successful individuals but who still know the rights and the importance yes. of nuclear families. Yes. Like, 
Like, that's where we need Can we to take be the like, good okay, from everywhere? Yes, absolutely. It doesn't need to be we're so individualistic that we're selfish. Yep. But it doesn't have to be that yes. we're your family needs you to survive. You are now a slave to your family unit. Like, yes. We, we, we can live without that. We can have that love of family. Yep. And have that viewpoint. So, next section was called Recovering Kindness. Yes. What does it mean to be kind? And authentically kind. I think to be authentically kind and not just have good manners, but to be like genuinely a kind person, I think it just, that layer of being humble has to be there. Like just thinking of yourself less in general, you just naturally become a kind and more joyful person. Yes. The, uh... Christotes, which a gentle, pleasant, and supportive attitude, which Mm -hmm. one notices that these are very, in America, these are very feminine words. (laughs) Like, oh, gentle, pleasant, supportive. Those are girl things. Nope. Those are not girl things. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like, I can't remember the speaker, but yeah, there was a talk about how, like, men need to be married or have some sort of like marriage type commitment because it humanizes them like they need to be learn how to be gentle and pleasant Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's so hard because of course you you want to teach them that without them having to be married because how else do we get priests um (laughs) But well, but realized. they're married if they're a priest. Yeah, that's so true. It, but I'm they, saying, they, like, yes, they have, they to, have to have a deep commitment. Yep, they have to have a deep commitment that they vow to serve and to do these things. Because, you know, but, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but naturally that's just not yeah. necessarily how some are made. And I mean, for some I, women as well, some women yeah. may not be that way either. That's Yes, I've certainly, but it's... It is, like, you don't want to contribute to the whole boys will be boys thing. Like, no. Right. No. But I will say, like, there is a lot of, like, I watch a lot of, or I um, read a lot of books. There was one male psychiatrist that I, or psychologist that I really like named um, Dr. Michael Thompson. And he talks a lot about how much we've done a complete disservice to the boy when Mm -hmm. we try to teach him these things, like, in a corrective measure when they don't necessarily like that's not natural to them we're not letting them be their natural selves everything about them is too aggressive you can't be too this you can't be too that and my Mm -hmm. husband will talk about that a lot too because he's a very like quiet man but yet he's still masculine and he still likes aggression he used to be a football player he even played semi-pro football and so it's like I can totally see. And then I have four boys. I have four extroverted active boys. Yes. So, like, I, I had to really dive deep into the boy psychology because I wasn't doing, especially one who's very active. One of my boys is, like, super, like, over-the-top active. But I, I was doing him a complete disservice because I was trying to squash all that, but it wasn't his natural instinct. So it's like, how do I cultivate that without destroying a child? How do I keep them safe and letting them be themselves, but yet, but yet still putting some like kindness Kindness. in there as well. 
I have several things to say. One, the first one of which is amusing, and to say that I'm not sure which of her boys she's discussing, except that it's not the baby. <laughs> it's all of them. <laughs> um, They're all wild. Uh, but the other thing was, I this was years ago now, so you know the details are vague. But I I had a conversation once with some women about instilling kindness pleasantness gentleness in boys and in people who just didn't who didn't um we were talking about charlotte mason and her habit training and Mm -hmm. um yes one of the and the big thing for me was i think you're thinking of this wrong what is the opposite of kindness the opposite of kindness is cruelty not rambunctiousness not Mm -hmm. big living not being all full body touchy huggy wrestly it's it's cruelty. So when you see cruelty, you can call that out and be like, then nope, nope, that's not a thing. And the opposite of what are the other things he talks about? Um, the opposite of pleasantness is more like sourness. It's not so pleasantness isn't being a doormat. It's be it's not bringing your bad attitude to other people and demanding they share it. Mm-hmm. It's trying to bring lightness to a room. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that because he mentions that in paragraph 224, that kindness frees us from cruelty that at yes. times infects humans' relationship. Mm-hmm. So don't, like, don't assume that you have, maybe you have a vision in your mind that when you, when you hear the words kind, pleasant, and supportive, you see a doormat with step on me written on her face. But this is wrong. Think about what is the opposite of those words and what is... And that helps you to really pinpoint what does this really look like? Because there's a huge variety of people who are kind in all kinds of different ways. Thanks for joining us this week on For Pete's Sake, as we explore the words of Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti. Find For Pete's Sake on Facebook and Instagram. You can find links to Fratelli Tutti and some of our sources in the show notes. See you next week. St. Peter. Ora Ora pro pro nobis. nobis.